0: 16 through 21, and John, don't worry, I'm going to read it to you, <laughs> and John 12, 1 through 8. They can be found on pages, for those of you who want to read, 671 and 991 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. Some of you can read that. Oh, you had LASIK this is God's word. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Next is John 12, 1 through 8, which is on page 991. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord.
1: I've received more letters from you than I can count. Fan letters that have touched me, made me think, laugh, and moved me to act. I've learned a lot through my mistakes, stumbles, and losses. I've also learned this game is a mighty platform that has given me a voice that can echo well beyond the game. Football has taught me not to be led by obstructions and setbacks, but instead to be led by dreams. I'm totally convinced that the end of my football career is just the beginning of something I haven't even discovered yet. Life is not shrinking for me. It's morphing into a whole new world of possibilities. Pundits will speculate that my effort and drive over the past 18 years were about working to muster, master every aspect of the NFL game. Well, don't believe them. Because every moment, every drop of sweat, every bleary-eyed night of preparation, every note I took, and every frame of film I watched was about one thing. Reverence. For this game. When I look back on my NFL career. I gave everything I had to help my teams walk away with a win. There were other players who were more talented. But there was no one who could outprepare me. And because of that I have no regrets. There's a scripture reading. 2 Timothy 4.7 I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. God bless all of you, and God bless football. <laughs> Peyton Manning gave that speech this week. Did you know that? He retired from football to great acclaim. Countless players, pundits, former Former friends and fans lauded his tremendous humility and his class, class act, was what everyone said, saying it was the best retirement speech ever. Now don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not cracking on Peyton too hard. I mean, how can you make fun of someone if he uses exact words? But, and, and I'm a fan, uh, uh, Sacramento Republic, go Republic, for three years, I'm a Cubs fan for 48 years. Still hoping. And I will shed tears when the Cubs finally win it this October. I think being a diehard fan can be a good thing, even as our culture's kind of unhealthily obsessed with professional sports. It is worth noting that the Apostle Paul, who wrote, I have fought the good fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith, uh, was shipwrecked, beaten, tortured, uh, bitten by a venomous snake, shook it off into the fire, uh, and then he was martyred. Um, although, I guess to be fair, he never had to stay up late watching NFL films and get bleary-eyed, so Peyton had to do that. It is worth asking, in light of the story of Mary anointing Jesus, though, what is it that we revere? Who for what or whom do you save your reverence? If you Google reverence, the, uh, the very first thing that pops up, I'm not kidding, is reverence is a deep feeling of respect or awe, like what you have for a president, a hero, or a favorite football player. <laughs> That's the very first thing. You got to dig a little bit down to get to reverence in the modern day is often used in relationship with religion. Reverence involves a humbling of the self and respectful recognition of something perceived to be greater than the self. I'm going to suggest to you today that our story of Mary, uh, she was humbling herself and showing reverence for Jesus. And even more than reverence, the most intimate devotion and love that even goes beyond any she could muster on her own. A love which could itself only come from someone greater than herself. So let's imagine the scene. It's an intimate dinner in the home of the closest of friends who'd been through a whole lot together in three years. These are Jesus' closest followers. So for us here at City Life, it's a window for us to see what it might be like to follow Jesus. And we really value your journey, like Mark said, and we hope this is a safe place for you to either just check out these stories of Jesus and those of us who call ourselves followers of him, or maybe a a place to take a few tentative steps and try out some new ideas, some new songs. That was nice today. Um, Or maybe it's a place to continue what's been a long journey of following for you. And today is a chance for us to embrace our journeys and peek in on some of Jesus' followers in action. This dinner with friends can show us something of what it means and what it might cost for us to follow Jesus. So here they are, close friends after the most eventful three years ever. And here's just a few highlights. This country boy, Jesus, very common name like Joe, drops his carpentry tools, and starts speaking with tremendous power and clarity, drawing huge crowds, showing great love for all kinds of people who are not valued in that culture. Homeless, mentally ill, drug addicts, prostitutes, cheats, self-important government officials, country bumpkins, day laborers, widows, children. He touched them all, healed them, created tremendous hope that the day that they'd all been waiting for was arriving. The one God had promised to send for generations was here at last with God's healing power to make all things right. This promised king was setting up a new kingdom. It was exciting and new, and they imagined it must replace the current power system. Rome was finally going to be kicked out. That was a big hope. Jesus brought together huge admiring crowds. He galvanized the religious leaders and the power brokers who plotted together to kill him. But mostly, Jesus invested his life in a a smallish circle of the unlikeliest of friends. Hated tax collectors, uneducated fishermen, political revolutionaries like Judas, and prostitutes like Mary, delivered from demons. And here they all were in a small house together, just a week or so before his arrest. And after all the miracles and all the amazing teaching, the demonstration of radical love of neighbor and enemies, Here they were. But Jesus had lately been talking about his coming death. Did they hear him? A few times he said it very clearly. Once he said, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, He will be raised to life. Mark mentioned that Lent is a journey toward the cross with a hint of Easter behind it. And Jesus was leading them to Jerusalem, a place they all knew was dangerous for them. The shadow of the cross dogged their every step. In fact, they were walking on roads that were often lined with crosses with political revolutionaries or others hanging. So the cross was literally on their path. And each time Jesus reminded them of what was going to happen, they were confused, scandalized. No, that can't be. No fight. And even now, just before Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts and cheers Of huge crowds. That's next week. There's this quiet dinner among friends. A dinner to honor Jesus. And again, he brings up his own death. Imagine the scene. Close friends reclining at the table. They didn't have chairs. They were like lying down, one elbow on the low table. Reclining almost on each other. And who's there but Lazarus? The friend who had just recently been dead. He'd been in the tomb. He'd begun to smell. And Jesus was there. And people are like, no, Jesus, he smells. And Jesus yells to him, Lazarus, get out of there. Come on out. And here he is, alive and lying on Jesus. At the table, eating dinner. Imagine that. Jesus went way up in the poles with a lot of people when he brought Lazarus out of the tomb after three days and he also rose on the hit list and here they are Jesus and his recently dead friend reclining at the table was that scent of death still in the air? I failed to figure out from Mark if anybody said what their favorite scent was but I'm guessing chocolate chip cookies coffee good perfume, stuff like that. Probably not death. I don't know what death smells like, but I know in movies people cover their noses when they're around it. Maybe Lazarus had been anointed with perfume as well. Did that smell still linger? Was the smell of resurrection in the air, even as the cross loomed? Suddenly, Mary does the unthinkable. She'd already done the unusual. She was sitting at Jesus' feet like a disciple, a place forbidden to women. It was her customary place. She'd already been there before. Jesus had commended her and said, Mary's chosen well to be listening to me rather than running around trying to take care of everything by herself. Then she touches Jesus. Now she's done it. Totally taboo. Then she just goes all the way and lets down her hair. This is not done. This is completely taboo even today in many cultures. And then she uses her hair to wash Jesus' feet. Strange and scandalous in almost any culture. People were definitely going to talk about this. Did you see that? That was untoward. That was too much. That was over the top disgraceful in my neighborhood. Some folks might say she done lost her mind. (laughs) What? There were going to be repercussions, but she doesn't care about her reputation. She sets aside her pride. That's a little rhyme we'll come back to. Set aside your pride. And there's more. She takes out what must have been a family heirloom, A large jar of very expensive perfume worth a year's wages to a day laborer. And she uses it all to anoint Jesus, filling the house with the aroma. Matthew and Mark in their accounts include Mary anointing Jesus' head. John says she anoints his feet. And she had plenty of this stuff called nard to do both. Very expensive, imported from Nepal, some commentators think. Everyone knew, in that room, everyone knew what anointing meant. It meant a few things, but one of the main things it meant, that's what happens to kings. They weren't crowned, they were anointed. And she anoints Jesus. And Jesus defends her critics by saying she was anointing his body for burial. Another common practice. So was foot washing. Very common and very needed. Foot washing. Reserved only for the lowliest of servants. Why do you think that might be? What did they wear for shoes back then? Sandals. Uh, How did they get around? Walking. How did they move stuff around? donkeys and carts and everything pulled by SUVs no oxen donkeys horses camels lots of sheep around you get the picture the roads were full of shite I mean (laughs) they're, they're walking in sandals through crappy dirt This is a nasty job. A nasty job that was humiliating. And Mary does it out of profound gratitude. Gratitude, maybe for her brother who's reclining with them at the table alive. Gratitude and reverence because she was able to see who she was and that she was broken yet beloved and she recognized who Jesus was, a king who was broken for his beloved. That's her and us. And Mary's shocking extravagance, using this pure nard, shamefully wasteful, said some, the most expensive perfume poured out all at once, costing a year's wages. Who does that? Maybe only someone who knew its relative value. You could say it like this, a year's wages, wow. Or you could say, a year's wages, so? What is that compared to anointing, a king, the king? My one and only Lord, the one and only Lord of all things. The only one really worth reverence. No act of devotion is too much. And Jesus knows that. And then Judas pulls out the old plank in the political platform. The poor. Seems, seems desperate to me to pull that out. This was expedience. Uh, using the poor as a football for PR. If you know me, you know I could talk a long time about this part, but I'm just going to say this. Um, any, any good work among the poor is it done in the context of relationships. Judas didn't have relationships. He was a thief, like the text says. Um, and he was just pulling that out it's like politicians saying uh our policies help children and education you know how easy is that their policies hurt children Ooh, wait what am i am i for or against hurting children <laughs> um, and jesus answers and says you will always have the poor with you and so i the only thing i'm going to say about that is think about that word with what jesus is saying there is not don't worry about the poor It's not important. What he's saying is, you always are going to have the opportunity to forge and develop and culture and nurture relationships with the poor around you. So do that. Get in those relationships. Meanwhile, open your eyes to what is right in front of you. The king. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Here's Mary with the least cred of all Jesus' disciples, a woman left out of the power structure of this society, and she had the intuition to revere him as king, but also to see the cross looming ahead, the cross which puts everything in her life and in the cosmos into proper perspective. The cross, which Jesus had told all the men about three times. And you know what they say about men's intuition? <laughs> Nothing. They don't. They don't say anything about it. <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> Mary saw what they couldn't see or they wouldn't see. So she set aside her pride. And here's another rhyme She got lost in the cross. That kind of rhymes she lost herself and she somehow knew that she would never be good enough to deserve or demand anything of the king. She could never earn such a sacrifice. Because she knew that, she could accept with gratitude that sacrifice and give everything she had with joy. There's no hint in her gift of trying to pay back or or hoping to please enough, or glorying in her ability to give more than others. She just gave to her friend with whom she reclined, who was the king, everything she had. That extravagant giving can only be produced as a reflection of the perfect love and grace that she had been filled with. It's almost like she couldn't help it. It was just overflowing Because she received so much. Contrast that with Judas. What was in his heart? Maybe he was angry because Jesus wasn't rising to political power the way Judas thought he should. He was a zealot who believed, the zealots believed if they turned Israel back to God through rigorous obedience and incited war against the Romans the Messiah, which literally means anointed one, duh, would arise to lead them to establish his kingdom. Judas was so intent on his plan to find the Messiah, the anointed one, that he didn't recognize the anointing of the king that was happening in the room right in front of him. Maybe he was jealous of the close relationships that he saw. Well, why does Lazarus get to sit right next to Jesus? <laughs> Maybe he saw that intimacy and he knew that he didn't have that and he was bitter and he was angry because God and the world owed him a better life. He was a zealot obeying the law of God scrupulously. And to what end? He followed Jesus for three years, even kept the books. For his church, and now Jesus is walking right into a trap and sacrificing himself. I was duped. I deserve better, he might have been thinking. Do you ever feel like life owes you? Like you deserve better? Better friends, better boss, better family, better politicians more recognition, better church, (laughs) more friendliness, Uh, safer drivers on the road. Maybe things are fantastic for you and you think that's as it should be. That's right. I deserve it. I worked hard. This is, my life is great and Cool. Or maybe your life is filled with crushing disappointments and failure. And you say the same thing. That's right. I deserve it. I'm awful and the only way out is for me to change myself for the better. So you may either try real hard or just give up and say forget it. If, these, if you see any of that in yourself, you might need to recline with Jesus. Relax. Lean right on him and rest. Take your time. Soak in the stories from the Gospels. That's one of the Lenten practices that we've invited all of us to do, this Lent. Um, soak in those stories. Feel the heart of Jesus beating next to yours. Look in his eyes and see the love and grace that he looks at others with. And maybe you can see that love and grace looking in your eyes too. You may need to get lost in the cross. Contemplate it study it, ask questions about what it means in the face of our tendencies toward both raging pride that just doesn't go away and a niggling self-loathing. I think Judas had both. And I can see that stuff in myself. Tim Keller is a pastor who says that we're all like bent, twisted metal. If we try to bend ourselves back to straighten out, what happens? Metal fatigue can break us. It's only when we're warmed, heated, warmed, softened that we can be gently changed and restored. I believe Mary somehow grasped that the King had come with that warmth into her broken life with his love and grace, healing her with what? With his broken body. Set aside your pride. Get lost in the cross. Contemplate the broken body of the king that we will take in together in a few minutes. Judas cared about how things looked but not about how things were. The truth and the hope of Jesus, the King, is that Lent leads inevitably to the cross. And we see Mary in this story humbly anointing the King. Death is right there in the room, but resurrection is there too. Jesus is dripping with it. And the aroma of Easter is in the air. Let's pray. God, we're full of ourselves. We either think that things are going great because we've worked hard and we deserve it. And or we think we got the short end of the deal and we deserve better. God, teach us to rest. Teach us to recline in your presence, to soak in the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy. Allow us to feel your hand upon us warming us so that we don't have to try to change with our own power. God, change us so that we can revere you alone so that we can give extravagantly out of the abundant grace that you've just poured into us like Niagara Falls. Allow us to feel that and see that. And then let that grace just spill everywhere we go so that we can be that, that beguiling aroma that can only come from you. We thank you and praise you for that opportunity. Amen.